All right, everyone. So welcome back to the show. I have a great guest today. Uh, Sean Baker is nice enough to, to take his time uh, to be a guest today. And I wanted to talk to him specifically about like the carnivore diet and how it relates to fat loss, uh, moreover than the general health picture and kind of the steps a person can do if they're interested in reducing their body fat and trying the carnivore diet to do that at the same time. So I thought no better person to come ask. Uh, I Actually, I learned about the carnivore diet from Sean Baker when I first saw you on the Joe Rogan show. It must have been like three years ago at this point or maybe even two years ago. Uh, so I don't even know, like, I'm like, well, I don't even know people just ate meat. So I thought it was, I thought it was pretty interesting. But come to think of it, actually, for, for the majority of part, like in the, the way I grew up in Ukraine, it was like very meat heavy as well. We had like some potatoes and some pickles and stuff like that. But it was just like, I mean, the bulk of the calories came from meat. So when I started thinking about it, I'm like, oh, it's not that strange after all. That's like usually how people live in a lot of parts in the world anyway. So uh, I'm going to let Sean take over um, on this podcast. He has like a large resume. Uh, it would take too long to, to kind of describe here, but he's an interesting guy. He, he served in the military and he's a professional athlete as well and, uh, and a surgeon. So I think that's, that's really cool. Uh, so we'll jump uh, right in. Uh, so if, uh, what would be your advice like if a person is looking to transition uh, off of like the standard American diet and into a carnivore diet for the purpose of fat loss? Is there like a specific sequence of steps a person needs to do to make sure that transition is, is safe or uh, properly done? Sure. Well, I think you, first of all, you know, get off the standard American diet. I mean, it's, 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 you know, not good for people. So any diet you want to transition to is probably going to be better than that with, with rare exceptions. And so I think, you know, first of all, the way I go into it is I use it as a tool. You know, you think about what, what are you trying to solve? Is it, is you want to lose 50 pounds or 20 pounds or you want to address some health issue, underlying health issue. So you have to, you know, have a purpose in mind as to why you're doing this. And don't consider it a, this is, I can only eat meat for the rest of my life. I don't really, I don't even necessarily, even though I've been doing it for four years, I don't necessarily sort of, sort of ask that of myself. I'm just going to take it one day at a time. And so I think you just have to have a right mindset going into this and think of it as a very effective tool. And that's what I use it as, as a tool. And it, it is very effective, but, uh, I think, you know, it depends on the person. You know, there's people that are relatively healthy that just have a little weight to lose and they're not really dealing with a lot of health issues and not a lot of medications. Those people can usually pretty transition into the diet reasonably well. And there's some steps you can do to, to, to transition. Or you can, you know, you can go straight into it. And I, I kind of use the analogy of pulling a Band-Aid off. You can either rip a Band-Aid off or you can pull it off real slow. And both of them get the job done. One involves a lot of pain real quick and one one, one involves kind of slow protracted pain, but maybe minimal, you know, you get mom pulling off your bandaid and they go really slow and dad just yanks it off. You know, it's just two different approaches there. Um, you know, the people that are, that have a lot of medications, you know, that a lot of times you need to be very cautious with that and you need to be uh, probably in, involved your healthcare provider to talk about what medications you might need to, to no longer be on, or at least reduce, because that can be an issue. You know, I'll use the example of high blood pressure medications. Very, very often we see people, with high blood pressure, their blood pressure will normalize or even go very low on the carnivore diet or, or many diets can do that. Um, and because of that, the medicines are on at the current dosage might even potentially be dangerous. And you can end up having a syncopal episode where you pass out and you, know, you get hurt. Diabetics also, you know, a lot of people will see their blood sugar plummet, you know, particularly those on insulin and things like sulfonylureas. And there's a new medication out there called an SGLT2 inhibitor. Anyway, those medications you need to be aware of. So if you're on a lot of medications, you should probably let your healthcare provider know, hey, look, I'm going to go on a 
you know, a low carb diet or carnivore diet, you know, if you say carnivore, they may look at you funny and tell you not to do it. But, um, again, that's your decision. You know, my, 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 as a physician, you know, it's my job to provide advice and help people out, but I work for my clients and my patients. I always felt that was what we were there. It's not the other way around. And so it's, you know, you run your own health. You don't outsource your health making decisions to someone else. You, you need to be the one that makes those decisions. Um, as far as, you know, transitioning over to a diet. So anyway, a carnivore diet, you know, and there's a lot of people that have different in, in, interpretations of what that means. You know, I actually literally defined this diet as a carnivore diet. I came up with the term. Uh, I didn't invent the word carnivore, but I mean, I applied it to what people had already been doing. Prior to this, this had been called, at least in its moderate iteration, had been called a zero carb diet. And I found that technology, that, that terminology to be a little confusing because there's a lot of things with zero carbs, diet coke, corn oil, you know, soybean oil, all have zero carbohydrates, not on the diet. So it became very confusing. So I said, well, you're basically just eating meat anyway. Most people understand that carnivores eat meat and, and, and that's how that, that, that came, that term came to be utilized. And so a lot of people look at it this way. When I, when I give presentations about what is a carnivore diet, and again, I think we have to know what it is. I, I, I talk about it as a diet is focused on animal based nutrition. And, you know, this is where your nutrition generally comes from. Plants can be part of that for some people, but I mean, the, the, the focus is to either limit or eliminate certain plants or even all plants to the degree necessary for optimal health. For some people, it's complete elimination. For many people, it's complete elimination, and it just makes it easier, you know, as far as, um, you know, when you're, let's say food addiction is an issue, emotional eating or stress eating or some of those things, and we love, there's a lot of those foods that we frequently fall back to, whether it's pizza or chocolate or ice cream or you name it, baked goods, cookies. Those things, uh, in order to be able to stop those completely, at least for a period of time so you can fix whatever problem you're dealing with, I think it requires you know, sometimes complete abstinence. And I think that works better. It's easier to be 100% avoid something than eat it occasionally because that's when, you know, it's like the analogy, and the easy analogy is an alcoholic. You know, it's not, it's hard to quit alcoholism being an alcoholic when somebody tells you, well, you can have a drink or two a couple times a week. This doesn't work out very well. So we see that same thing happening. But with regard to the transition, two things that are that I often see, and I wrote this in, you know, in a book, I, I cover this a little bit, but we see that removing carbohydrates from the diet has a physiologic impact on our overall energy system. And so we have to you know, sort of be prepared for that. So sometimes transitioning away from that for a period of time makes sense. And then the removal of fiber from the diet, because this is another thing that people are like, where do you get your fiber from? Well, I don't. I mean, you don't technically need fiber. It's not an essential nutrient. There is people that will talk about it being conditionally beneficial. And there's probably some truth to that in the context of the standard American junk food diet where fiber will displace otherwise worse foods, you know, sugars and, you know, garbage food. And so, you know, sort of tailoring, tapering those things can be helpful for some people. Uh, you know, so I, uh, you know, I've got kind of a, I think a month long thing I outlined in the book where you just kind of, you know, you just, you just cut the percentages down by 25% each week until you get to zero. Um, some people like the way I kind of approached my transition is that I, I didn't know at the time. I just did it intuitively was I had kind of studied this and I think, you know, you should go into it with the expectation that you're going to be successful. So that, that, that also helps. If you go to any, any sort of inter intervention and thinking this isn't going to work, I'm not going to be able to do it. You know, odds are you're not, you're going to, you're going to kind of predict the future. And so it helps to spend time learning about it, researching it, reading about it. We've got, you know, there's a, a company that we found called meterx.com. We've got hundreds and hundreds of success stories and all kinds of information and data, probably, you know, the largest place in the world where you can get this data. But 
you know, once you, you know, sort of make that decision uh, to do that, I think that uh, rather than focusing on, you know, how many, ma you know, macronutrients, how much fat and how much protein and how much do we eat and all that stuff, I tell people just focus on the having fun, enjoy, enjoy what you're eating. You, you know, use it as a, just a time to be a little bit decadent. If you enjoy extra flavors, uh, you know, in the beginning, and many people end up very just due to like myself. I mean, I'm on, I'm on this month. I've had a hundred percent of my meals this month and then red meat, they've been steaks every meal twice a day. So I'm like four pounds, I'm big on about four, four pounds of meat a day. But when I started in, 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 well, let me go back further. When I first started, I was reading about and learning about people doing this. And then I said, well, I'm going to try it just for a day, you know, just one day. So I ate meat, I think it was steak and eggs. And I ate that all day and I did okay. I wasn't like, wow, I didn't, I didn't die. I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have green beans on my plate or spinach and one whole I didn't die or I didn't have starch. And so then it gave me the courage to do it for two days and then five days and then seven days and then two weeks and finally 30 days. So that can be a strategy too. just kind of convincing yourself that, you know, you can do fine with these other foods. And, and you know, if you know how to cook, I would encourage everyone to learn how to cook, uh, you know, a steak and steak and eggs or whatever, make some bacon so that you have these sort of ability to feed yourself in a way that's, that's, that's good because there's so many convenience food options out there where you just tear a package, eat it. You know, it tastes pretty good for a second, but it's garbage for you. You know, and this is a, there was an interesting survey done on, I think it was millennials, but it might've been the generation X. I think it was generation X. So the one after that, right? No, the millennials came after generation X, sorry, the millennials. And they were asking them, they, they weren't eating as much cereal, breakfast cereal anymore. And the reason wasn't because they thought breakfast cereal was unhealthy or anything like that, which arguably might be. It was because it was too inconvenient because they had to wash a dish. You know, it was, it was you know, the act of having to pour it in, pour milk in there, use a spoon, eat it, and then you have to rinse a dish. That was too much work. And so they'd rather just open a package, throw it away, and shove it in the mouth. And so that, that is why there's been a decline in some of the cereal consumption. But, um, so, but I think, you know, learning how to cook, it's a skill you need to have. If you don't know how to do it now, you should know. I mean, you know, your parents knew how to do it. Your grandparents definitely knew how to do it. Learn how to make food tasty. Use variety. You know, it doesn't have to just be straight up plain ground beef in a bowl. It can be, you know, you know, steak and eggs. It can be fish. It can be seafood. It can be pork. It can be bacon. You can put some dairy in there. Use some spices initially uh, to make it exciting, make it interesting. You know, use variety. And then you'll figure out what works for it and what doesn't. You know, the, you know, the goal, again, the goal, if it's weight loss, you know, then you probably going to be able to get away with more variety. If it's, I've got an autoimmune disease or I've got some issue, then it makes sense to be really, really restrictive for a while to figure out what, where the intolerances are coming from. So that's kind of an overview of how you know, I often talk, tell people about transitioning. But I think the biggest concept is, Enjoy what you eat, eat enough so that you're not hungry. You know, the question is, how much do I eat? And I tell people, eat enough so you don't want a cupcake or, you know, insert your food of choice. You don't want a chocolate bar. You don't want a pizza. You know, eat enough. Uh, and you do that for a while. And then, then, then those cravings will go away. And then, and then you're in a different position where you can start to, to play with the, the amounts and the, and the macro, macronutrient composition and so on and so forth. Well, are there, are there like any like ideal meats people should eat? Like, should they vary it up a lot? Like you mentioned, you're basically eating the same thing uh, very often, but is there like a, a superior nutritional profile to let's say uh, wild caught salmon versus steak, you know, or is it just a different nutritional profile and people should have variety to gain like a, a variety of different nutrients? Oh, I'm not, I'm certainly not opposed to variety. Uh, and I think that for many people that makes it sustainable. Um, I don't know that we can, well, 
you know, having seen literally tens of thousands of people do this, do this now and do this successfully, I think the, the, the more common pattern that I see is that people tend to do well with, with ruminant meat, typically red meat. You know, so things like, you know, typically beef and lamb are the most common ones. And so those ones seem to provide the most satiation. They seem to be the ones that sustain people. First, I've rarely, if ever, seen anyone be successful doing this on a purely seafood diet or a, you know, just a chicken diet. That, that, that has not, to my knowledge, I've not seen a lot of people be successful with that. So I do think that red meat has some unique properties. Now we understand that, you know, red meat has, you know, something like 50,000 unique nutrients in there. You know, this is, uh, you know, I, I interviewed a guy named Stefan Van Bleet, who you may be familiar with. He works with a guy named Fred Provenza, and they've done some of this nutriomic research on different food substances. And beef has over 50,000 unique compounds, which is, which is very interesting. Now, some of them are present in other foods as well, but I mean, they're all they have a unique profile and I, and my suspicion is that um, as humans evolved and we were hunting, you know, if you, if you think about what sort of types of animals would give you the most bang for the buck, so to speak, how much hunting would you need to do to acquire X amount of meat? You know, the, the common sense thing was you'd, you'd hunt big, big animals, big, slow moving animals that don't necessarily run away. Um, and, and that's clearly what humans, at least there's good evidence to clear that humans did that. So rather than spending their time chasing birds, with a spear, which is what they had for much of our evolution, you know, it makes more sense to kill a big old mastodon or mammoth and, you know, eat for a couple months rather than every day having to hunt 50 birds because, you know, you're not going to get much meat off of most birds, right? Yeah, I so, think you did an interview with uh, Jordan Jonas, uh, the survival of, uh, yeah. what was yeah. that show? I think it was like on the Discovery Channel. I forget exactly. But he's, a, he's a really cool guy. I follow him on Instagram as well. Yeah. Really nice guy as well. He was telling the story of how he was like, I believe he said he was hunting rabbits and couldn't like live off that, but then he killed like one moose and basically was able to win the show simply because he was able to sustain himself off of just that one animal the whole time. Yeah. And I think the, one of the issues there, one of the critical pieces there is, is fat content. You know, again, these big animals that we hunted, you know, early on in our evolutionary past were big and fatty. And then once we they basically over hunted them, you know, and you know, there's, most of the evidence points to human over, over hunting. There is some probably some climate impact in there somewhat, but humans clearly were very effective at hunting and killing those animals. And unfortunately, to the point of our sort of somewhat of our demise, you know, we've kind of ran out of those things. And so now we're, when we're faced with leaner animals, it becomes very difficult to meet some of our energy needs because protein, well, it's a great source of protein and we need it for building blocks. It doesn't provide the energy that we need to fuel our brain and some of our other tissues. And so you can either do that from carbohydrates, which, you know, clearly we adapted, you know, that capacity at, a, at probably a later time too. Uh, you know, some of it to our demise is, as we, you know, move from the sort of the hunter stage, hunter gather stage, if you will, to agriculture, we lost 200 cc's of marine size. You know, when we look at the, you know, intracranial size of, of, of hunter gatherers versus early agriculturists, there's a big dramatic drop in brain size and so that wasn't due to the standard education system <laughs> <laughs> i don't think so i don't think so. okay <laughs> it's really purely nutritionally based but uh yeah so i think it's you know when, when it comes to what do i you know i think red meat you know it, what it does is it, it has more concentration things like heme iron and some of these other compounds but also the fat content you know it's it's hard to get a really fatty chicken or you know a lot of fat out of chicken but you can get it out of you know, typically beef. So that, that, that works pretty well for most people. So if I were to say there's one food I would eat 
I would say it would be red meat with enough fat on it to fuel you. And that, and that would be where I would, that would be my sort of baseline of the pyramid. And then beyond those things, it's kind of up to taste. And, you know, there may be some benefits for a variety, just, just for, for the sake of boredom, I guess, you know, sometimes I'll, I mean, I generally throughout the year will eat a real bit more varied diet than I do during this month. This month is World Carnival Month, and so I kind of tighten things up. And so I've just been pretty much 100% red meat, you know, salt and water has been my diet. And I'm doing that I ever do when I do that. But during the regular rest of the year, I might throw some eggs in there. I might have some seafood. I might have uh, a little bit more dairy. You know, I'll mix it up. And that's fine, too. Yeah, and for the listeners, uh, you know, of course it varies between how much fat is on that steak and everything, but just one pound of steak averages out about 1,000 calories. So it's like actually like deceptively nutritionally, uh, nutritionally dense. I mean, it doesn't look that big, but you do get a lot of like bang for your buck in terms of calorie-wise. The average person, I presume, since they're probably not working out at all, can just live off of like, like a steak and a half or two steaks a day and be yeah. like actually very, very full. Like I found with my clients, uh, I don't transition them to an all carnivore diet, of course, and this is something that they want to do themselves. But I just found just getting, uh, you know, their protein quantity to match at least like one gram per pound of body weight decreases their appetite by like 30 or 40 percent of the calories they're eating on their like fast food or standard American diet, for example. So you eat a lot less. Yeah, you know, I think, in, you know, people talk about mechanisms of action, why people lose weight on the diet. And, you know, certainly there is. Um, a, a component of, of, you know, dropping calories. I think that's, that's, that's it always is an important aspect of it. You know, also the protein, you know, we know that protein has uh, a higher thermic effect of food than, than carbs and fat do, you know, probably, you know, something like 25% of your protein calories go to just, you know, absorbing and adjusting those, those. So you lose 25% right off the bat. So you get that So you. In, in other words, you can eat 25% more calories and protein than you can from some of these other foods without turning it into energy or storing it as energy in the form of either fat or glycogen. And so that, that is helpful. Uh, you know, and I think that's something that, uh, it does seem to have a satiating effect. Some people talk about this protein leverage theory where you'll eat until you get enough protein. And if you're eating potato chips, you got to eat a lot of potato chips before you get enough protein. That's why you're always, you know, hungry, how you can eat the whole bag and keep going and then give me a tub of ice cream on top of that, you know? And so that is, uh, you know, a, a different way to look at it. But, uh, you know, the food should be, you know, I think for, for a nutritional strategy to be effective, I think two things have to be fulfilled. One is you have to like what you're eating. You know, if, if you tell me I've got to eat, you know, kale and quinoa, you know, you might as well just tell me to eat cardboard. It's not going to be very good. I mean, I might lose weight that way, but I'm not going to be able to sustain it. And the other thing is, you know, you've got to be able to figure out and deal with hunger. Hunger is a hugely important role here. Um, if you are hungry all the time, you're just not going to be successful in, in, in any diet. You know, willpower, willpower works for a short period of time, but, uh, you know, sustain over time, you're just not going to do it. So I, I think if you, if you like the food and you can figure out appetite, and I think a meat-based diet often helps with that pretty well, um, you can be successful. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. I'm curious, have you ever been confused by the labels in the grocery store? In Yevgeny's book, he demystifies the difference between caged, cage-free, free-range, and pasture-raised meats. He also covers how to avoid GMOs, source high-quality water, fish, supplements, and other related topics. It's a beautifully illustrated, non-technical read that comes with a comprehensive video series and other extended learning materials. Jump on Amazon and check out the book titled Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide by Evgeny Trefkin. Now let's dive back into the podcast.
Gotcha. Well, what's your take on like uh, sourcing? Do you feel it matters if you're buying like the factory farm meat versus like the pasture raised meat or is the wild game like the absolute best? Like what's your, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, it depends on in what sort of framework you're talking about. You know, I think, you know, if we're talking about environmental issues, if we're talking about, you know, perhaps animal ethic issues, then I think it's pretty clear. I mean, I think, you know, if you can source it from someone who, uh, you know, uh, is regenerating the land, you know, we've got this concept of regenerative agriculture or adaptive multi-paddock grazing or, you know, there's holistic management, there's all kinds of different terms for that. But if you, you know, if you've got somebody doing that, then likely those animals have been treated very well. Uh, they uh, have had a good life. Um, you know, and they've helped the land, you know, and it's not to say that the cow that goes to a feedlot is, is necessarily being harmed or abused like the, the vegan propagandists will tell you. But, you know, I think from a, from an environmental standpoint, you know, they're, they're probably, it's interesting, you know, the feedlots generally create less methane overall. They tend to require less water, arguably, they tend to cause require less land. This has been a pressure that was put on from you know 1960s and 70s said hey we need to produce more food but we can't use the land so that was a solution the problem with that solution is you've got animals crowded you've got you know meth you've got manure issues you've got uh, um, uh, antibiotic usage and the creation of antibiotic resistant organism issues and you know and then some people say well we think the animals are sick and therefore the meat's going to be problematic I don't think the argument saying that you know, the meat from those animals is going to make you sick. I just, that doesn't bear out in practical experience that I've seen. And I've talked, and, I, and I, I'm trying to encourage people to do research in there so we can say one way or the other constructively. Because so I've talked to the people, uh, Fred Provenza, you know, Stefan Mondleet, and some of the others which I mentioned that are actually doing that research. And they agree with me. And I talked to, uh, oh, who was the other one? I'm blanking on the name. Oh, Jason Roundtree, another one that says, look, we don't have data on human health yet to say that. This is definitively better. Now we can we can say that the nutritional components are different. Yeah, we can clearly say that grass-fed beef has more vitamin A and more more vitamin E and higher amounts of omega-3 fatty acids. That's true. But the, the problem with that is we don't know if it truly has an impact on human health or not. So I, I'm hesitant to say that it does. I'd love to be able to say it does because it you know it would give us more sort of credence to say we need to support regenerative agriculture, which I do think we need to do absolutely. But you know, for the people out there saying, hey, if you're eating meat that comes from, you know, uh, the grocery store, it's poison and awful. And that's just not true. I mean, it, you know, you, we don't even know. It may be slightly better to eat a regeneratively raised animal. We don't know that yet. But, and I hope, it, I hope it turns out ultimately to be that case. And hopefully there's some research coming that way. But uh, clearly eating, because you know, I see people that all they can afford is they can get ground beef from Walmart. And these people are reversing diseases. They're coming off medications. They're as happy as they've been in years. They feel great. They're losing weight. So even if there was something slightly worse with that stuff, it still is such such a better superfood, if I can use that term, than 99% of the stuff in the grocery store, which would be processed food. And I would far rather you eat cheap ground beef from Walmart than you're eating cereal and potato chips by far. Yeah, exactly. So... What's your take on organs? Is eating organs of the animal super necessary or is that something that's like way blown out of proportion? Uh, I think there is a lot of some people that are advocates of that that probably blow it out of proportion. I think that uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with it and there are certainly people that benefit from that. I've clearly seen people that, that will report that I feel better when I eat you know, a little bit of liver each week and, and that sometimes actually changes over time or maybe initially when they first transition, they're so nutrient depleted that these rich 
bioavailable source of nutrients, you know, help them with that transition. Over the long term, um, and I've, you know, I've done data collection on something like 10,000 people doing this diet, only about 15% of the people on the diet actually eat organs with any regularity. And I define regularity with as more than once a week or, or once a week or more. So 85% of the people either eat less than once a week or never at all. So to say that it is absolutely essential and that you can't get healthy, you can't be optimal without organ meats, I think is, is disingenuous. I think there's people that perhaps are trying to sell you something. Maybe they, you know, or, you know, I, so I, I, I don't, like I said, I'm not convinced. I personally, you know, I've tried to eat organ meats. I, you know, I've, I've, I've had them many different ways prepared by very good chefs that have made it. And I've never said anything more than, you know, you know, man, it's okay. Uh, I've never really felt that there was, yeah, most of them have been like, I don't like this, but I mean, there's been a few, like I had, I had, I was in Miami uh, a couple of weeks ago or about actually two months ago. And I had sweetbreads prepared as part of this giant uh, Argentinian meat platter. And I ate them up and I really was like, this is nothing that I would sort of go out of my way to eat. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't bad. It wasn't like, Oh, you know, like some of the other ones, like I had kidney. I was like, man, this is like, you know, drinking a, you know, eating, eating a urinal. I mean, I don't know. I just, and like it so yes <laughs> um so anyway I, I i really push back on the people that tell you that you can't be optimal without it you know i just i just i just don't think the evidence is in that, that, that clearly shows it i, I mean I, I appreciate the valuing the whole animal and the you know the whole sort of you know not wasting anything i think that's that, there's nothing wrong with that argument but i just don't think again i tend to stick to results what happens with people rather than theory and, and, and telling a nice story and you know that type of stuff i don't eat to I don't eat to um, satisfy my ethical desires. I eat for nutrition. And I think if we stick to that, we're going to be far more successful, you know, because that's where you get veganism, where people are eating because of, of a belief that maybe not necessarily has to do with nutrition. Yeah, the belief that crops don't actually destroy the soil. <laughs> yeah, or something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, we can we can, we can go, go on for days about some yeah. of the, uh, the illogical nonsense coming out of the vegan camps but yeah well how do how do, how does have there been any like blood work studies done on people like doing a carnivore diet for like three four like six months or a year so there is a study that has been done uh, i actually helped to organize it with the harvard university dr uh, david ludwig and uh, as a senior author and belinda leonard's uh, who's the primary principal investigator they've done that study that study is being written up as we speak right now. Uh, I suspect it'll be published sometime this year. I, I don't know what the results are. I haven't seen it yet. I know what I've seen as far as results are concerned, you know, but, but, but not a formal study. Now I'm also funding or, you know, doing the fundraising for another interventional study that, that will be done looking at this stuff too. There's been a number of case reports, you know, and again, those are interesting, but they're only one person or two people. And so, uh, but but there will be a study it's coming out. So it's coming out. There's more and more people interested in this. And so I, I can tell you what the general trends are. They're very similar to what we see coming out some of the ketogenic camps where, you know, you see improvements in inflammatory markers. You see decreases in triglycerides and improvements in HDL. You usually see improvements in glycemic control. You often see weight loss, you know, so on and so forth. You know, sometimes you'll see an, uh, an increase, however, in, in LDL cholesterol, which some people think is a bad thing. I think that's context dependent generally. Gotcha. Okay. Well, do you have like any kind of like practical tips in terms of how to make this economical for people that might be more price conscious sure. or any things you've noticed? Uh, like for me, I've noticed just 
even when you buy from regenerative farms, for example, just the ground beef and the organs tend to be way cheaper than everything else. And it's still like very, very high quality. Sure. High quality yeah, I mean, so, I mean, there's, there's a number of ways to do this. So, I mean, you, what you say is that exactly right. If you can, if you can connect with a rancher, you know, and, and buy his ground beef, uh, you know, buy his organs, buy in bulk, they'll usually cut you a deal. If you can buy that, you know, if you can buy a side of beef, you know, it's a couple hundred pounds of meat, you can usually get it at a pretty decent price per pound, you know, sometimes five, six bucks a pound, even for a grass finished animal. And so, um, you know, that's one way to go in a very good way. I, I really strongly encourage people to buy directly from, ranchers because this is an industry that you know there people are going to be going after and they're going to try to eliminate that and if we don't support them that will happen and we'll and you'll see these giant corporations just take over the entire food supply and then what will happen is you'll be at the mercy of whatever is at their their their, their profit line and, and that's what you're going to get and it's not going to be in my belief it's not going to be the best nutrition um, you know, if you, if you're, if you can't do that, and you want to go to the grocery store route, you know, again, buy on, you know, buy in bulk, uh, ground beef and eggs is a really good, cheap version of carnivore. Um, there are, I know there's a, a website that I used to use called, uh, mygrocerydeals.com, which you just basically, so mygrocerydeals.com, you just type in your zip code and you type in like meat and what it'll do is it'll show you all the prices for meat in the local area and when all the sales are on. And so you just go in and when there's a sale, um, I know like one of the grocery stores near me in, in California here would have ribeye steaks on for like four seventy seven a pound. So I would just call the butcher up and said, Hey, set me 50 pounds aside. And I would just go in and buy 50 pounds of it in one setting. And so now I've got, you know, a freezer full of you know that. So if you've got a freezer, it makes a lot of sense. Get a freezer if you can, you know, you can, uh, you, can you can do that in bulk, but, uh, uh, the sales often occur, you know, right around holidays, you know, when these traditional barbecuing or cooking holidays, you know, for Christmas when people have the big Christmas roast or Thanksgiving when they have the big turkey or 4th of July or Memorial Day or Labor Day or whatever. There's usually a big sale on meat before. So you go on, you buy it. That's usually when prices are really low. So you can stock up then, you know, fill your freezer up, eat for the next, you know, until the next holiday season. And then uh, you can do it that way. Gotcha. But Sean, I have two two kind of questions uh, for you personally that are somewhat related to the topic we're talking about now. Uh, so one is like, what do you feel about um, what do you feel about basically the real? I know we have like this COVID nineteen pandemic right now, but what do you feel like the real pandemic is is actually kind of like an obesity problem in the U.S. Because at least from the, the bit of research I've done, it seems the people that are the most affected are basically uh, inactive males over 15% body fat and inactive females over 25% body fat. They seem to be at the highest risk category. Of course, there are some exceptions, but the general rule is that, you know? Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's never changed. I mean, that's always a situation with rare exception. I mean, uh, people that are sick, frail, old, metabolically unhealthy are always going to be at greater risk for you name it. I mean, it's, you know, particularly when it comes to infectious diseases. I mean, the exception might have been the Spanish flu of 1918, which disproportionately struck younger younger people but um you know and there's some childhood illnesses that affect killed children but the general sort of you know respiratory viruses and things like that you know the flus and stuff like that we always see deaths among very old people elderly people and that's not surprising old people die I and mean, i don't want to i don't want to be come across as callous or mean but that's just the reality old people are going to die and they're going to die pretty frequently uh, and they don't have much reserve. And then the other people that, that are disproportionately affected are people that you just pointed out. These people that are 
obese or metabolically unhealthy. You can be thin and be metabolically unhealthy too. You can appear to look relatively healthy and not be healthy. I mean, it's not to say that doesn't happen, but so, yeah, I mean, that is a pandemic of, or, you know, an end that we are endemically metabolically unhealthy. And so we're always chronically sick in that regard. And the, you know, the frustrating thing for me is even if we can't agree on what diet is best, I mean, we, I think, you know, I don't think anybody out there believes that these sort of ultra processed junk foods that are just everywhere in the grocery stores are, are healthy for us. And so if we would just get the message out there that stop eating that stuff, replace it with fruits and vegetables, I don't care, replace it with meat, you know, replace it with whole foods, just do that as a very bare minimum. And then be active, just get out and walk. You know, instead we're telling everybody, stay inside, watch Netflix, order, you know, support your local restaurant because, you know, get up, order pizzas. And, you know, this, this is a message we're, we're, we're basically being told. And that is not helping the situation. That is making the population increasingly more vulnerable. And so instead of protecting the vulnerable, we're just creating more vulnerable. Uh, and so that's, that, that's a shame. Now the old people are going to be older, but even old people can benefit from this. You know, I mean, it's, you know, like just getting out and, you know, spending three hours a day being active. And I mean, just maybe walking around. Most of us just sit. I mean, unfortunately, you know, you know, my, and I've, I noticed myself, my job now being all online, I do a lot of sitting in front of a damn computer. And so I've sort of decided, you know, I've made the decision that, look, I'm going to spend three hours a day being active. And a lot of us just walk, you know, let's go outside and walk. And I work at the same time. You know, fortunately, I have technology. I can do a lot of stuff on my phone. I can go for a walk and answer emails and make phone calls and stuff like that. But just be active and stop eating garbage. And that would, that would probably, you know, if you look at some of the places where we don't have a high number of, you know, deaths or morbidities associated with disease, we see things places like parts of Southeast Asia, Vietnam, I think it says what has one of the lowest death rates or case rates in the world. And, you know, outside of you know, PCR cycle threshold testing, which is another can of worms. But if you look at that pot, Vietnam is the skinniest country on the planet. They have the least obesity rates in the entire world. And coincidentally, they have the lowest you know, number of people dying from this. So there, there's something there. I mean, it's like I said, when you have a bloated, large, fat, sick population, you know, you're, you're going to have more sick people. Yeah. And I guess to give you more credit to your statement, I've had uh, seven nursing clients uh, basically in the last year get COVID at one point or another. Uh, one of them was like a 53-year-old 53 53-year-old 53 male, and they're very physically active, and obviously I have them eating very well, et cetera. And the worst that happened to them was they just got sick for like two days or three days, and then we're back at work like a week or a week and a half later, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, that, that is what was supposed to happen. I mean, that's what we have an immune system for. When, when, when we're healthy, our immune system works you know, reasonably well. Um, that's how we evolve. We evolve as, as a species. I mean, we are in contact with, despite masking and social distancing, you're still in contact with millions upon millions of virus particles and bacteria every single day. You know, you can't get away from this stuff. And so, in fact, there's some, uh, well, I think some studies are now showing something like 72% of all these transmissions are occurring in the household. So, I mean, are you going to have a lockdown from the home where you can't, you know, you can't be in the home or something. I mean, you know, there's a point yeah, where you, you got to you, go out in your back. Right, you, yeah. You got to sit, you got to sit, sit in the backyard, socially distanced so that, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's just, there's some level of, you know, where does the logic make sense? So absolutely. I think uh, the problem is, you know, the population health is, is the address. That's a true, that's a true issue that we're not addressing. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to, I just don't think government's going to address it. I don't think they have the, I don't think they have the will to do so. They've got too many conflicts of interest to, to, to truly address it. 
Well, do you do you ever think America is ever going to get out of this like symptom management loop of symptom managing like everything? Because I feel like okay, you'll get rid of this virus, and then like another one will come around in like two or three years. Then you got to create another vaccine for that, and then another one will come around in like ten years because that's just the way Earth works, basically. You know, things come and go, and it's like to me, common sense says like, oh, you know, maybe you should take like a small portion of the money you're looking to invest into universal healthcare and just reinvest it into very basic health education, like elementary school through high school, like basically, lack of a better word, like brainwashing kids into like understanding what whole foods are, not even being a master nutritionist or anything, just having a, like a basic understanding, like this food gives you, uh, you know, health and life and this food doesn't and like basic movement science or like basic nonviolent forms of communication, like little things like this that will help like exponentially improve your health and actually, well, at the same time, because less people will be using the universal healthcare system, you could actually have a universal healthcare system because people will just go and use it in case of emergencies, not just like random little stuff that could be avoided just by like eating something as simple as like eating like a human being, you know? Yeah, I mean, the cynical side of me says, no, we're never going to get out of this system and it's too profitable for the companies. But I think if, you know, if I think, you know, one of the things is, you know, I mean, I think most of us will, will concede that if we improve our metabolic health, our, our rates of disease, you know, our susceptibility to disease will go down. I think you have to make that profitable. I think you, you know, I think the sort of the wealth system, the people that are willing to, you, I mean, the people that have all the money have all the sort of control, basically. You know, that's, we were, we're run by a lot of corporations at this point. I think if we can figure out a way to make it profitable, uh, then, then we might see a transfer of, 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 of emphasis. You know, as long as we can make money at getting people healthy, uh, and, and that's a hard part because right now it's so profitable to keep them sick or to have sick people because you can just, you know, hand out these expensive drugs. But figure out how to, you know, somehow turn, convert healthy people into either, you know, making money, getting people healthy, or becoming more productive as a society and as a, as a corporation by having more healthy people. You know, if, if the bottom line makes sense, then I think we'll get there. But if it doesn't make sense, I suspect we'll see more of the same, unfortunately. You know, like I said, I'm trying to do my part in the world to make that happen. But, uh, you know, it, it, you know it's, it's kind of a long, long uphill battle for sure. Gotcha. And I guess last question, last question for you. You might have uh, experienced this a lot through uh, uh, when you kind of became like a carnivore uh, expert, et cetera, et cetera. Is how do you... Uh, how do you deal with like uh, criticism or people like calling you out online, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of continue strong with your message? Because I know a lot of people, including myself at times, sometimes when I would on forums say like, oh, you know, like if you just took a little bit better care of your, uh, of your health, like a little bit better care of your health, you probably won't have any complications from COVID, you know? And people would like light me up left and right for saying something which I think is like common sense. But, and it kind of like makes me a little bit kind of, worried. I'm like, oh, should I be doing that? Am I going to get my account banned now? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how do you, how do you deal with those circumstances? Because I'm pretty sure that's come up like. Well, I mean, I've got no shortage of detractors for sure. And I, you know, I, I kind of look at this like, you know, if you try to please everyone, you'll please no one. You know, that's, that's, that's one thing you're never going to, you're never going to make everyone happy. So you're always going to have some people that disagree with you. And that's fine. I mean, I think that's the way it should, should work. You know, particularly what I'm doing is, is pretty polarizing with regards to nutrition. Um, I, you know, the good thing for me is, you know, as, as much as I have people that, that, that dislike what I'm doing or think I'm stupid or ugly or fat or smelly or whatever they call me, I get 
10, 50, 100 fold more positive. I get people telling me every single day, hey, you know, Dr. Bear, keep doing what you're doing. You changed my life. You significantly improved my health, so on and so forth. So that makes it pretty easy there. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, you know, there was a point in time where I would sort of try to engage in logical arguments or in discussions with these people. It, it was, it was just totally fruitless. It was just, it was a waste of time. It was just like, I don't know. So I don't even engage in it anymore. At best, what I'll do is sometimes somebody will say something that's so ridiculous or stupid, I'll just screenshot it and post it back up and say, look at how ridiculous this, this person is. And, you know, and, and the funny thing is I get a lot, you know, because I get a lot of vegans that don't like what I'm doing. You know, they think, oh, my God, you're promoting this death, world-destroying diet and, and so on and so forth. And funnily enough, I get many of them that said, hey, Dr. Baker, I just want to let you know I was a vegan. I used to hate you, but now I love what you're doing. You fixed my health and so on and so forth. So, I know that's going to happen. And, you know, also online, you know, people are, they're anonymized, you know, they're, they're often private accounts or they're fake names or, so I don't, I don't really worry too much about that stuff. And then if it's, if they're too annoying, I just block them and move on, you know, I don't, I don't hesitate to do that. You know, it's like, you know, it's just like, you know, there's, there's many more people that, that, that are out there that'll, uh, uh, be receptive to them. So I don't, you know, say to be, you have to agree with everything I say or do, but, uh, you know, what, what really sort of, I think the biggest pet peeve I have is when people tell me what I'm supposed to say. You know, we like what you talk about meat, but how dare you talk about, uh, you know, health outside of meat? I'm like, look, I'm a physician. You know, look, I'm a military veteran in a war. You know, I serve my country. And, you know, they, they, they sort of think, well, you're only entitled to have, we like you because you talk about meat, but you're not allowed to talk about politics or health in any other way. And I'm like, you know, go screw you, dude. Come, you're out of here. <laughs> I'll talk about whatever I want to talk about, you know, and that's, that's the thing. But, you know, there is, I do have concerns around some of the censorship that we see that uh, that's happened, you know, in these, these sort of big tech companies that they're very quick to pull the trigger, censoring an opinion that they disagree with. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm very much concerned that, uh, you know, we'll see somewhere in the near future, perhaps, uh, the, the sort of the belief that eating meat is good for you and healthy and can fix the planet through regenerative agriculture will be considered an unpopular opinion and therefore, you're not allowed to express it anymore. So that, that's, that's certainly possible. Gotcha. What do you, I guess, last question overall, what do you think of a lot of these kind of like, um, just anyone that's speaking up about like uh, natural methods of getting rid of COVID, their like accounts basically being like deleted for the most part off like various social media platforms? You know, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's unfortunate. I think that, uh, you know, we, we are, you should be, um, you know, if, if we're going to allow people to be adults and have freedom of thought, freedom of speech, you should be allowed to be exposed to different opinions and thoughts and, uh, uh, you know, make your decision. I mean, we don't have people up there censoring Beyonce because she's selling Coke, Coca-Cola or Pepsi or whatever like that. We don't see that, you know. And so it's like, who is it that's, that's making the decision on what people are allowed to think or be exposed to or, or do? I mean, what are, you, are they going to come into your home and ban you for having discussions, you know, I was like, oh, you know, you have a shot color put on where you, you know, you can just see where the, the next iteration of this is. We, we have the thought police. We have the, you know, the ministers of information, you know, kind of the, you know, kind of the 1984 Brave New world mm -hmm. stuff, which I think is very disturbing for sure. Gotcha. Well, do you have any, do you have any closing uh, statement, Sean, about anything you're kind of maybe writing another book or any programs you're doing these days? Um, no, I'm not, well, I don't, I'm not planning on writing any books anytime soon. I, I, in fact, the book I wrote was, I didn't plan on writing. The publisher approached me and asked me to write a book, and so I did. But, uh, um, you know, I'm really excited about uh, the evolution of what we're doing at Meterex. You know, we're going to be extremely 
doing some really cool things. So I'm excited about that to see what's coming in the near, you know, in the near future. And so we're, uh, we're, we're, you know, we've got some really fun things coming. So I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Well, thanks. Thanks again for, for being a guest, Sean. It was, it was great to see you again. Seth. Well, this is perfect time. My battery on my phone is about to, or on my computer is about to die. I've got, I guess it's about, it's good for two podcasts and I have to plug in. So gotcha. I'm trying to stand more, so I'm not near, near wall sockets anywhere. Awesome. Eugene, well, thanks a bunch, man, and keep doing what you're doing. Appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. Okay, good luck. All right, have a good one now. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Have you ever been confused by the labels in the grocery store? In Yevgeny's book, he demystifies the difference between caged, cage-free, free-range, and pasture-raised meats. He also covers how to avoid GMOs, source high-quality water, fish, supplements, and other related topics. It's a beautifully illustrated, non-technical read that comes with a comprehensive video series and other extended learning materials. Jump on Amazon and check out the book titled Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide by Evgeny Trefkin.